Welcome to our podcast, SGLT2 Inhibitors Morning Commute, a clinical pathway for action. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with App Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Boeinger, Engelheim Pharmaceuticals, and Eli Lilly and Company. In this episode, Dr. James Januzzi and Dr. Silvio Nzuki discuss the surge in collaboration between primary care physicians, endocrinologists, and cardiologists, and the groundswell of cardiometabolic clinics. They attribute this to cardiologists moving beyond the so-called glucocentric view and focusing how diabetes therapies might help reduce cardiovascular risk. Drs. Januzzi and Nzuki will also discuss the recent guidelines that now incorporate SGLT2 inhibitors into clinical pathways. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors 6. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Januzzi is member of the Cardiology Division of Massachusetts General Hospital and is the Hutter Family Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston. Dr. Silvio Inzuki is Medical Director of the Yale Diabetes Center and is a Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Januzzi will begin our discussion. This is Dr. James Januzzi from the Mass General Hospital Heart Center. I'm really thrilled to be once again speaking with my colleague, Dr. Silvio Inzuki from Yale. And this is a really great discussion because it reflects the rapid evolution in our respective fields, that being cardiology and endocrinology, that has come about because of the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, and, and what I'd like to uh, touch on today is the surge in collaboration between primary care physicians, endocrinologists, and cardiologists, and the groundswell of cardiometabolic clinics. So Silvio, thanks for joining today and looking forward to our discussion. Same here. It's great to be with you. Super. So in part because of SGLT2 inhibitors, in part because of also other drugs like the GLP-1 receptor agonists, um, there's been this heightened awareness among cardiologists that we need to start thinking beyond the so-called glucocentric view and focusing on how these drugs um, might help to reduce risk. And so specific to the SGLT2 inhibitors, there has been a, a rapid evolution in current guidelines. In fact, there's been partnership, right, between the ADA and the mm -hmm. American College of Cardiology um, with respect to our, our um, practice guideline documents as well as consensus documents. And, and so maybe why don't we start first where it all began, which is in the diabetes world. And can, can you give our listeners a sense of how the American Diabetes Association's stance has evolved on the use of SGLT2 inhibitors? And let's talk about first patients with diabetes. We can, we can reserve the discussion mm -hmm. about patients mm -hmm. in heart failure without diabetes in a little bit. Well, I'm going to rewind us back to 2015 because that was the last of the, what I call the dark ages in terms of diabetes guidelines because uh, we were completely agnostic to cardiovascular complications. Uh, the guidelines went something like this, metformin, then add one of six additional agents, including uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors, which were on the market for one to two years when the 2015 guidelines were written. And those decisions uh, as to whether you added that second line agent after metformin 
was really glucocentric. It was based on the A1C. If your A1C was controlled and you're on metformin, you left the patient alone. If the A1C needed further lowering, you added one of the six other uh, conventionally used therapies uh, to metformin. And then step three was you added a third drug if the A1C was not controlled. And ultimately, uh, you could use combination insulin injectable therapy. But it was a very um, glucose-driven set of guidelines, and there was nothing uh, in the uh, medical literature yet regarding any clear impact of any of these therapies on cardiovascular complications. So uh, the uh, impact of these medications on the heart, on the kidney, uh, were really not discussed in these guidelines. Yeah, it's really interesting how we've rapidly transitioned from focusing on our specific organ or, or disease state to now thinking more holistically now that we have a therapy like an SGLT2 inhibitor that really crosses boundaries. It, it's a, a, a glucose lowering drug, but it also has impact, as you said, on, on kidney function, on heart failure risk, on cardiovascular death. And this has led to a shift in stance, right? So that's right. Even the conservative American Diabetes Association is changing their stance. Right. So as of 2015, when a series of trials, both with SGLT2s, but also the GLP-1 started coming out, showing clear cardiovascular benefits, uh, then uh, the guidelines had to change. Uh, They were no longer focused solely on glucose, and they took into account the important comorbidities in patients. And as of 2015, we're supposed to ask an important question before deciding what to do next after metformin. And that question is whether your patient has uh, either overt or at high risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or heart failure or CKD. And depending on the uh, comorbidity, uh, the decision is very, very different. So if ASCVD is present, then the second-line therapy after metformin should be either an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 agonist, because both of them have very similar effects on major adverse cardiovascular events. If instead heart failure predominates the clinical picture, then that second-line drug really should be an SGLT2 inhibitor because of the clear benefits uh, in both the treatment as well as the prevention of heart failure. And finally, if um, the patient has chronic kidney disease, then once again, we're back to the SGLT2 inhibitors because those are the uh, drugs that have been clearly demonstrated to reduce the progression of CKD. Yeah. And as a cardiologist, I find those recommendations to really resonate because they target disease and it's less about targeting a blood glucose level, for example. But to be sure, obviously, we need to keep the glycemic status in mind when we when we intervene. And, and so it's an interesting question for, for those clinicians that are managing their patient's blood glucose. I'm sure there are many out there who still have patients taking sulfonylureas, of course, and many who are taking DPP-4 inhibitors, great glucose lowering drug, very well tolerated. You know, how do, how do you as a diabetes specialist focus on initiating an SGLT2 inhibitor if the patient is taking a drug such as a sulfonylurea that might increase their risk for hypoglycemia through the addition of an SGLT2 inhibitor? Well, there are two issues here. One is a safety issue. So if the patient is tightly controlled, either on a sulfonylurea, for that matter, insulin, what I do is I begin to titrate down those medications. 
However, if the patient is already quite hyperglycemic, then obviously you don't need to do that. You can just add the SGLT2 inhibitor. But we swap very often, particularly for SUs and DPP4 inhibitors, where there is zero evidence of cardiovascular benefit. So if they don't need it from a glycemic standpoint, we will swap in an SGLT2 inhibitor, simplify the regimen by getting rid of the DPP4 inhibitor or, or SU. But again, if they need additional glucose lowering, um, it's totally fine to have an SGLT2 inhibitor prescribed with a DPP4 inhibitor. I don't personally use a lot of sulfonylureas anymore, but those two drugs can be used in combination as well. That's that's really helpful guidance. And uh, you, you know, as you know, at the American College of Cardiology, we've we've taken a, a great interest in how we can offer guidance to clinicians with respect to understanding the optimal means by which to reduce uh, cardiac risk in our patients with diabetes. Uh, you, you know, once again, really focusing on the non-glucocentric view um, and really targeting the disease of complications heart failure, CKD, even, you know, the, the other complications, including atherothrombotic disease. And um, so that kind of advice is really useful um, to provide, um, I would say, you know, the, the kind of guidance at the point of care that clinicians really need. Um, in that regard, you know, we published recently a couple of documents, the first of which was focused on risk reduction in type 2 diabetes. And, and this really focus not so much on the why we should do things, but more on the how we should do things in terms of the initiation and titration of um, SGLT2 inhibitors, when to use them and whom to use them, uh, as well as the GLP-1 receptor agonists. And, and that expert consensus decision pathway document uh, was, um, was, was endorsed by the ADA and supported by diabetologists like yourself, who really, I think, help us as cardiologists understand where the guardrails are. Who do you use them in? When do you use them? But let me ask you a question. Who should you avoid using them in? I, I'm curious. Let's sort of think sort of practically speaking. Well, they're, they're pretty safe drugs, as you know, the SGLT2 inhibitors. They don't work if the patient is anerc, right? So end-stage renal failure patients, end-stage renal disease patients, I should say, um, will not benefit, we don't believe, from an SGLT2 inhibitor. And in fact, when you look at the prescribing guidelines for the SGLT2 inhibitors, most have uh, specific warnings about not using them in patients with very low GFRs. Right now, the labels uh, describe 30 as the lower cut point in terms of eGFR. But as you know, some of the more recent trials have pushed the boundary and have actually used the drug successfully uh, down to GFRs of 25, uh, even 20. So I don't think we know the lower bound of the uh, efficacy uh, uh, threshold uh, for using SGLT2 inhibitors, but certainly if the patient has ESRD, um, there, there is absolutely no uh, evidence of any uh, benefit. So I think understanding the renal function of your patient is key. Um, the major side effect is actually more of an annoyance, which is uh, genitourinary infections, not so much urinary tract infections, but it's really genital mycotic infections. And if you understand how the drug works, it puts glucose in the urine, I think it's easy to conceptualize how that side effect might occur. It's uh, typically um, women who get uh, mycotic infections, yeast vaginitis, uh, but men can get it as well. In fact, the relative risk is increased about threefold in both sexes, but because the underlying risk 
is much higher in women, uh, I think they bear the brunt of uh, this specific uh, adverse event. One, one uh, clinical pearl is that you tend not to see it in circumcised men. So it's really a complication that you see in uncircumcised men. And I, I have that conversation before I prescribe it with any patient that have they had yeast infections or they know what it feels like and to give a call if that occurs or to, or to use OTC topical agents. I think women are very comfortable with that. Men, I think you really have to uh, uh, warn them about this because um, many of them have not experienced uh, so-called yeast uh, balanitis. So anybody who's had recurrent yeast infections, I think uh, at least a discussion should be had. And sometimes you really need to stop the medication because of uh, recurrent infections. But I think that would be the exception, not the rule. In terms of UTIs, um, it's theoretically a concern. As it turns out, in these large cardiovascular outcome trials, some of which uh, can, treated uh, more than 10,000 patients with SGLT2 inhibitors, um, the risk of UTI was actually not distinguishable from that in the placebo group. However, if you have a patient that's had either recurrent UTIs, uh, life-threatening UTIs, such as urosepsis, uh, being instrumented, uh, you know, having uh, Foley catheter, nephrostomy tubes, I think you might be asking for trouble. So I might avoid uh, the medication in those in, in individuals. But generally speaking, um, the drug is uh, relatively well uh, tolerated in uh, type 2 diabetes, and certainly in those study populations that we've seen in the early heart failure in the CKD studies. One caveat, though, is that they've really not been adequately tested in type 1 diabetes. Um, there are some small trials looking at glycemic efficacy, um, but there is this risk of DKA uh, that has been demonstrated in type 1 diabetes. It's interesting in that it is euglycemic DKA, so the glucose level does not increase that significantly. Uh, but at this point, we probably should be avoiding these medications. Uh, they're certainly not approved for use in type 1 diabetes. Yeah, that's really helpful and and a, a warning because obviously not all diabetes is created equal when it comes to the response to therapy. Of course, and although there may be a future for this class in type one patients, it's obviously very very understudied at this point. So early on, there was a lot of discussion around the risks of SGLT2 inhibitors in patients relative to their amputation risk, and specifically focused on canagliflozin. and. Um, that, I think, has largely faded a bit, but nonetheless, a lot of our patients have peripheral arterial disease that, with diabetes, and I have had clinicians say to me, no, I'm not, I don't want to start an SGLT2 in this patient because they have PAD, lacking critical limb ischemia, lacking wounds on their feet, but still that, that, that specter of amputation hovers in the background. So how do you respond to uh, clinicians who are concerned about this amputation risk, number one? Is it real? Is, does it still exist? And then number two, how do you manage the prescription of SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with peripheral arterial disease? So those are really good questions, and I struggle with them myself. Obviously, the, the, the red flag was raised in the CANVAS study with, with canagliflozin. Interestingly, not seen in other canagliflozin studies. So it was a, it was, it was a unique aspect uh, to that um, uh, cardiovascular outcome trial. There was a doubling of the amputation risk. Uh, most of them were in the lower extremity. Most of them were toes, but there were some uh, that were more um, uh, significant than that. And that led to a warning in the canagliflozin label, which was interestingly recently removed by the FDA because I, I assume that they were convinced that with subsequent studies, it must have been a, a, a fluke. 
Uh, is there a theoretical possibility, particularly with the uh, studies demonstrating some plasma volume reduction that maybe there is some sludging of the peripheral microvasculature that can lead to further ischemia. I guess it's possible, but it's never been seen in any of the, of the other SGLT2 inhibitor uh, trials. So just the presence of PAD to me uh, does not uh, raise any uh, concerns. I will admit, however, if I have a person with critical limb ischemia who's already had amputations, I might reconsider the use of an SGLT2 inhibitor because I don't think we know everything about that specific um, uh, concern that was raised in, in Canvas. But we've looked at this specifically in patients with PAD, and they also experience the same reductions in cardiovascular events as do non-PAD patients. So, And, and um, one might expect, given their higher baseline risk, sure, that the sure. absolute risk reductions are yeah. larger. Right. So, so like with anything, I think you have to weigh the risks and uh, benefits. But I do empathize with those clinicians that see, you know, a very ischemic foot and say, you know, I'm uncomfortable starting an SGLT2 inhibitor. Thankfully, we do have other medications such as GLP-1 agonists that we can use in that situation. But I think that's more the exception than the rule. That's wonderful. And so you've sort of portrayed a, a, a really great sense of in whom one might select the SGLT2 inhibitors and in whom might one might want to pause and think twice. And, you know, the patients with advanced kidney dysfunction below the sort of the 20 to 30 EGFR range might be a place where one might think about going to another agent like a GLP-1 receptor agonist, active limb ischemia, et cetera. You know, in the heart failure space, um, we don't deal with maybe uh, some of those issues as much. I mean, of course, we have patients with diabetes and heart failure, but you know, critical limb ischemia, prior amputation, although we see it, it's not as maybe as, as uh, prevalent as if we looked at an entire population of patients with heart failure. I'm, I'm sorry, with diabetes. Um, the ACC recently published an expert consensus decision pathway document focusing on optimal management of patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, wherein we uh, now have incorporated SGLT2 inhibitors as part of the foundational therapy, the pivotal four pillars, if you will, of therapy next to beta blockers, angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors, and mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists for the care of patients with heart failure and reduced EF. And in this document, again, very practical, providing the how rather than the why uh, to clinicians and offering guidance for optimal deployment and titration. Fortunately, with SGLT2 inhibitors, they don't need to be titrated. Um, at the point of care, um, this document really, I, I think, helps to reorient the cardiovascular specialist and anyone else interested in the document for how to focus on the non-glucocentric view for these drugs and touches on many of these issues, including the putative side effects of SGLT2 inhibitors. You know, it's um, interesting, Jim, that the, uh, the diabetes community may be following the cardiology community in, in this specific uh, issue. And I say that because of the guidelines that we referred to before, the latest iteration of these guidelines actually states specifically that the addition of these medications, either SGLT2s or GLP1s, based on those comorbidities that I referred to before, should not be driven by the glucose. In other words, it's not, it's, it, this is a decision that is made based on the presence of the comorbidity, even if the patient is already well-controlled. 
meaning that if you have a gentleman with CAD, for instance, and maybe a little bit of early uh, systolic dysfunction, is on metformin doing great, A1C 6.8%. In the old days, meaning like two years ago, we'd say, pat him on the back and say, go on your way, you're doing great, your diabetes is under good control, because the A1C was controlled. Nowadays, I think we're both uh, uh, saying together, cardiology and diabetes communities, that you should at least consider the use of one of these additional therapies, specifically in this circumstance, an SGLT2 inhibitor, even if the A1C is controlled, because A1C in all of these SGLT2 inhibitor trials did not mediate to any degree uh, the significant benefits on heart failure hospitalizations, et cetera. That's, that's really amazing when you think about it, right? The American Diabetes Association is essentially saying, use the drug, don't focus on the glucose, which okay. I, I think is fabulous. And that's an important clinical pearl that I think I hope people take away from this discussion. So in the last 30 seconds or so, we've, we've got some clinical pearls already about peripheral arterial disease, about mitigating the risk for uh, urinary and, and pelvic infections. Um, what other things should we think about? If you start an SGLT2 inhibitor and somebody taking a loop diuretic, for example, Sylvia, what do you tell them about the impact on their volume status? What should they expect? Um, I tell them that they may become modestly dehydrated. It's important to keep up with their fluids. And it's possible that we may need to reduce the dose of the loop diuretic. So I think uh, uh, just a, a rule of thumb is if they're dry to begin with, cut down the loop. If they're euvolemic, follow them closely. If they're already a little bit volume up, then simply add the SGLT2 inhibitor. Super. And here's the last point that I think is so important because this one comes up all the time. You start an SGLT2 inhibitor in somebody with heart failure, for example, but also with diabetes, and their GFR worsens by a few points. Their creatinine goes up. You get a frenzied phone call from another clinician who sees that the creatinine has gone from 1.6 to 1.8. What do you do? I say no problem. That's what you expect, right? You, you, this is uh, probably hemodynamic, whether it's intraglomerular or related to renal blood flow uh, is a discussion for another day. But it's a consistent finding that the GFR will drop uh, usually less than five milliliters per minute when using these medications. It's actually a good thing. Patients who drop their GFR uh, demonstrate stability over time. So it tells you that the drug is working very analogous to the RAS blockers, right? You expect a little bit of drop in the GFR. Now, if you get a huge drop, I think we need to be concerned. You will see occasional patients, particularly those patients that are very close to the 30 to 45 milliliters per minute range, uh, that those uh, patients probably re require a little bit closer monitoring. But uh, it's not even recommended that you recheck the GFR a month or two after initiating treatment in those patients with normal GFRs. Yeah, and that's, that's just such an important final point, which is these drugs are so important. You expect to see some small changes in kidney function early on, but in the long run, the benefits of these therapies cross over such that there's a long-term protective effect against loss of GFR. And so not stopping these agents needlessly because of that expected change in GFR is perhaps the most important pearl we can take away from this uh, for our listeners. So I'm going to wrap it up and I, I really hope you all found this to be useful. This is Jim Januzzi and uh, Silvio Anzuki from Yale. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for joining us. Remember to claim your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors 6. 
For all the podcasts in this series, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash cardiology. Cardiology.